the axe of the blood god. <laughs> Welcome to another episode of Axe of the Blood God, US Gamer's official RPG podcast. I'm your host, Cat Bailey. Joining me as always, my lovely co-host, Nani Oxford. Hello, everybody. I'm seeing an eight today. We have multiple guests on the show. Joining us is Game Explains, Derek Bittner. Hello, all. And a little later, a friend of mine will be joining us to be talking about Vampire the Masquerade. But we're going to talk begin by doing our full review of Octopath Traveler, which is now officially out. It came out last week as of the release of this episode. All the reviews are up. And while well, Nadia did not score it as of the re- this podcast recording, maybe we will have a score by the time this episode goes up. Though I don't think so. I think it's going to be closer to Monday. It's, it's quite the in-depth game, Nadia. It is quite the in-depth game. Um, I know I'm not the only person who, uh, who did not finish, so I, I feel a little bit of relief over that because... Uh, uh, despite appearances, it is a dense-ass game, and I mean that in a good way, but if you are trying to play it all within a couple of weeks to get it scored, it's a little stressful. Uh, Derek, did you finish it? I unfortunately did not. I finished two character stories, but I still have six left to go. Uh, I got them all at least uh, their second chapters done, so I made some decent progress. I have about nine chapters left to experience, but as Nadia said, this is a very long game like just with what i've accomplished so far i've already put in 45 hours and by my estimations about my usual uh time that it takes me to complete each chapter i'm thinking there's going to be about another 15 hours worth of gameplay and that's not even including the side quests or everything else that's come out about the game healthy 60 hour rpg have you had to do a lot of have you had to do a lot of grinding derek no, actually. I've only had to grind in earnest twice, and that is mainly coming from me going between different characters and having one character that's just a little bit lower than the others and not able to support them as much. But after an hour of grinding, they're usually caught up enough that I can just do it. So I've only had two hours worth of grinding in that 45 hours that I've been playing, which is really nice and refreshing. Yeah, just a a quick question, uh, because I have a feeling here. Uh, Was one of the instances you had to grind, I'm not going to say anything because of spoilers, but was one of the instances you had to grind with Ulbricht's chapter? Uh, I'm guessing his chapter two you're asking about? His chapter three. Oh, his chapter, I have not done his chapter three yet. Oh, okay, so hint, get him up up. to speed. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Oh boy. (laughs) Yeah, I was... Wondering about that, I was I was a little worried with his chapter two because of the situation that took place there, and I was like, "Oh, is he is he going to be actually on his own for this?" And fortunately, it didn't end up too much like that. But no, it was I believe it was Ch- uh, Tress's uh, chapter three that got me a little bit. I got into this area where elementals just started beating the heck out of me, and I'm like, "Oh God, what is happening?" So just a little bit of grinding necessary in order to be able to actually handle all of them. Yeah, the elementals are a real pain in the ass. Thankfully, you don't encounter them too often. But now that you mention it, they seem to come up a lot in Trust's chapter. So I'm currently playing the prologue. This is just the demo version that allows you to carry over your progress to the full version if you so choose. Mm -hmm. The character that I chose first, and I'm kind of curious to know who you guys ended up choosing first. I I know who Nadia chose first because we talked about it last week. Snow Leopard! (laughs) Fuck yeah, Snow Leopard. I chose Ophelia to start because I, if I ha- did not know Nadia in this horrible alternate universe where I didn't know Nadia, 
I would have chosen Hannet first because, I mean, come on, bow, hunter, sweet animal companions. But I decided to try something a little different, and I went for Ophelia because even though I don't normally like the cleric character, I was kind of looking through the entire list, and I was like, eh, big burly warrior, nah, dancer, nah, thief, nah, apothecary, nah. <laughs> uh, but this girl, like, she's kind of like um, El- Elfa, Elsa? I don't, I don't know. Uh, from Frozen? Yes. Yeah, whatever her name is. <laughs> and Disney is just currently preparing the sharpening their knives right now. But <laughs> I clearly have not. I, I clearly don't have any kids because I, I don't know who the main protagonist of yeah, Frozen is. I've right only there. seen it once. <laughs> oh, my God. I've only seen it once, too. <laughs> but it's it takes place in the Frozen North. And it does. I, I do love the Frozen North. And it's quite pretty. It is. And I've played yeah, about three hours. And the prologue is about three hours. And that is mainly consisted of watching some of the introductory story for her, going around. I've been recruiting characters. I mm-hmm. went and recruited Hannet first, and she's quite powerful, actually. She she's actually one of the most powerful in the game by far. It's one of the reasons, besides the reasons she's awesome, but she's a really good staple to have in your party because she also has access to some really crazy secondary skills that'll help you out. Very intuitive as well. And then mm-hmm. I went and... Recruited the apothecary, and he's okay, I guess. Uh, he has good healing skills. It feels a little redundant with the cleric, and I kind of want to kick him out of my party <laughs> as soon as possible. Because A, is boring, and B, I just don't have a ton of use for him. Uh, so some in- initial impressions, I suppose. It's it's a very pretty game in the sense of I like the HD 2D look that that's the jargon that they use uh-huh. of the... It's 2D, but it's also kind of 3D-ish. It's almost like a, a pop-up book. Yes. And mm-hmm. it makes for some very striking environments. Uh, now that I'm into the flow of the battle system, I'm feeling pretty confident with it. And I'm like, oh, this is all right. It's all right. Yeah, okay, I'm enjoying it. And it's held my attention, but I'm still very much on the fence about whether I'm actually going to shell out the money for it. I'm curious... Mm-hmm. Derek, who is your first character? It's it's really funny because I actually chose Haunted as my first character as well. Shock. I <laughs> Yeah, I don't know I why. I think a lot of people did. I, well, the thing is, like, I liked Primrose from the initial demo that was released, although I think it was last year or something like that. And like, okay, I like Primrose a lot, but I probably should experience something new first rather than you know, see Primrose again. So I decided well, I was looking through the others and I hadn't been following too closely. Just, I just, I, cause I knew I wanted to get the game. So I'm like, okay, I'm getting it. I'm just going to go in blind, see what I can uh, experience. And I don't know. I saw Haunted. I'm like, okay, that seems interesting. That seems like a pretty interesting move set and whatnot. And I ended up loving her. She is a, as you said, uh, Nadia, she is a staple. She is, she is. really powerful. She's a beast. Re- Oh, yeah. And really versatile because of the um, monsters that you can get on your side. You can fill in any weaknesses that you might have, especially later on uh, where they multi-hit or Mm -hmm. uh, hit everybody. It is super useful to have her in the party. And then I gave her the secondary class of warrior, which at level 40, I'm able to hit nine uh, for basically 10,000 damage. Uh, if <laughs> nice. I power, if I you know increase her uh, attack and lower the enemy's defense, I'm wiping the floor with them, and it's it's really nice. Mm-hmm. Um, 
I actually like Alfin though, because I went west, and so I got Therion as my second character in The Thief, and he's a lot of fun. Uh, and it be- became a staple, and Alfin also became a staple of my party. Like, those three were the three that always stayed in my party, party the entire time. Because while I like Ophelia, I feel her healing skills are a lot more expensive than Alfin's. And Alfin focuses more on solitary, like healing one character at a time stuff, while Ophelia is all about healing everybody at once. So it felt more appropriate for me to just give Alfin the um, cleric secondary class. And whenever my entire party was in trouble, I could just have him use that stuff. Although I will admit, I did not find a lot of use for his concoctions. Yeah, uh, the thing uh, I'm actually uh, putting up, I'm working on a list of, uh, you know, the, the best uh, to worst Octopath characters. Uh, I mean, they're all great, but you know how it is, best to worst. Okay, um, yeah. And one of my top picks, I'm sorry, is Alfin. Not so much because of who, what he can do. Nadia. <laughs> so I fired folks. Bye, everyone. <laughs> and not so much for what he can do, although I can imagine that people who have the patience to figure him out will have a good time with him. Uh, I just like who he is. I like that there's this kind of happy character who just wants to go out and help people. And when you consider the world we're living in right now, I just feel like that's something I really needed to, like I really enjoyed uh, what I played so far of his journey. And not to mention Octopath Traveler in general is kind of a dark game. You you get to some pretty dark themes, especially with Primrose's story. And he's a good Mm -hmm. counterbalance to that. Well, as a friend of mine would say, you're perfectly entitled to your wrong opinion. (laughs) (laughs) I I will say uh, like, as dark as Primrose's story is and stays for pretty much the entire time, Alfin was the other character I actually finished. I finished Primrose's and Alfin's stories. And Alfin's chapter three can get pretty dark itself with a lot of the stuff they talk about. Yeah, I'm actually in it now. And I have to admit, it's uh, it's not very sunny. Uh, although Alfin himself is still sunny, but I'm kind of up against a, a very, something very sort of dark happened. And I'm just like, oh, I saw that coming. But at the same time, that's really terrible. Yeah, it really is. And that's that's the funny thing with these stories is sometimes they can get a little tropish and predictable, but they're but they're st- so well told and acted that I still found myself they getting are. really wrapped up in them. Yeah, they are. And you, even like even though the game's dark, you still have these really like funny little vignettes going on. Like I found a Simpsons reference in one of the uh, you know, how you can kind of inspect the characters and, and read about their motivations and whatnot. I found this NPC who's quote unquote, you know, worrying about that sinister looking kid who's trying to kill him. And I'm like, <laughs> Oh, there's a sinister looking kid outside. Ah! Exactly. I, I'm like, Oh my God, that's great. I mean, one of the squirrels in the, in the game has an attack called these nuts. So oh, yeah. <laughs> oh my I came God. across that one too. I'm like, I did a double take when I saw that. Like, did I just see that? And I'm like, yeah, yeah. I saw that. All right. Gotta have that po- those pop culture references, right? Oh yeah, oh, yeah. I mean, they- <laughs> well, it's not these nuts; it's these nuts. So it, it is kind of timeless. <laughs> uh, was it Hannah? Oh my gosh, uh, Hannah sounds just like a character straight out of a Ted Woolsey script. Oh, she does with yes. the these and the thous and the thouists. Yes, she sounds yeah. like Cyan on drugs. <laughs> yes, on it's almost like too much. Yeah, she can be really hard to read at points. Like, I, I appreciate the fact that every single character really does have their own dialect and the way they talk. Um, but man, Hanuk can be really tough to read sometimes. Like, every time there's voice acting, you're like, oh, thank God. <laughs> let, that, let them do it. I don't have to work. I don't have to work. <laughs> the thing uh, that kind of ties into what you were saying earlier, Kat, about how you're not sure if you're really latched on to the game enough to, uh, 
get into it and, and drop the money on it. And this is something that actually Game Explained touched in its review as well, is honestly, as you get more in-depth into the stories, they really pick up and they really start to become pretty fascinating. At least I thought so. Yeah. What about them is fascinating to you? Uh, just, um, it's hard to describe, really. I just uh, have, maybe fascinating isn't the right word, but I did find them engaging. That's a better word. Uh, mm. I just, uh, get like I said in my review, it's very much tailored towards to tell you each individual story, not so much how the characters interact with each other, but how they interact with their world and their problems and the characters that, you know, are directly affiliated with them. And I found that for really good focused storytelling. Uh, like I also said in my review, it's not like everything's stopping so that you can shovel in a sea where uh, a, uh, a side quest so you can learn more about the C grade mascot character. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I just feel like I'm reading like decently written chapters from a pretty good brisk book yeah that's that's really the idea you have to go into this you you cannot expect the typical rpg epic where we're going to go save the world no it's very much personal stories in all four of them and it's it really is just a collection of short stories that take place in the same world and i i know it's disappointing for a lot of people to not see these characters interact much but the few interactions you do eventually get between them between them Mm-hmm. can be really entertaining, but I also understand why they don't do it that way because it is so open which order you go in. So the amount of extra writing they would have to do in order to like, hey, I have uh, Hanet and um, Primrose and Ulbrich along with Tressa this time, but maybe this other person has uh, Therion and uh, Cyrus and whoever else. And it's just, it changes things up so dramatically. So it makes sense to keep them separate in that way, or else they're going to have this uh, knot that just cannot be parsed at all. So I, yeah, I really yeah. do get it, but it's also, but it is disappointing because that's what you're used to from RPGs. But really, it's just, these are just really good short stories. And the part that got me probably the most down, at least when I first began playing the game, as I was enjoying it up until I got my f- first four characters. And then I went for the other four characters to just complete, you know, I wanted to see all eight stories start. But that also got really repetitious. And I started getting kind of bored with the game. Like, I just, like, it wasn't challenging. It wasn't interesting. Like, I liked the stories when I experienced them, but it was just nothing going on. But as soon as I started going into the chapter twos and beyond, it picked right back up again for me. And I was, I was instantly engaged way more to see how these stories developed from their opening bit. It's just, you, I, the freedom, I really do recommend if you get, like I did, Play a cha- play a second chapter for one of the characters you already have. Break things up. Do something different. Yeah, yeah. It actually gives you recommendations for what level you should be, but feel free to ignore that and and go in there and be a big person. <laughs> Put on your big <laughs> person big pants. So can I just switch over to another character and focus on their story without having to start all over again? Yep. Yeah, uh, what happens is basically, um, I'm not sure if this is how it is in the demo because I didn't really play the demo. Uh, but if you're in the middle of someone's story and you're like, ah, I'm not really into this anymore. I want to take off. Uh, it'll ask you can go. You can basically go to the, the innkeeper or sorry, the barkeep, and uh, you can basically drop the story and return to it uh, later on uh, if you just pick it up back at the pub. And it pretty much picks up where you were. I find the stories okay. So as you as you dear listeners may know. I am not that engaged into stories in video games or fiction in general. 
and I am much I find the pure joy of of RPGs is being told it's like how do I manipulate the systems how is the story being told through systems or mm-hmm. how am I setting up my lineup and that kind of thing and if I'm not engaged with the story I'm just kind of inclined to skip it to be perfectly honest and so far I mean with Ophelia and out apothecary guy uh (laughs) both of them have sick people that they're looking after and people dying and there's like standing around at gravestones and everything and and that's fine and everything but it feels very business as usual very anime in terms of how they're presented and that's okay yeah like it it feels like it it feels very comfortable Mm -hmm. and but at the by the same token i don't really see anything about these characters that are super engaging so at this so almost immediately i just became inclined to start skipping through the story so that i could get to the bits where i'm fighting which i'm i find the battle system much more engaging than the story so far well you might as uh was said um by both of us you you might really get into the stories once you get to those chapter two i might find a character that i really like that's true Mm -hmm. yeah i like ophelia she's fine yeah, uh, she's she's okay. Like she's very much the sad protagonist who has a sister or something and is on a journey. Yeah. She's on. She, yep, she's on a journey to save people. And I'm <laughs> like, oh, okay, yeah, cool. Uh, that that's the all the hook that I need. I have no idea what's going on with the huntress because I've been skipping her story entirely. <laughs> <laughs> oh. Have you really? <laughs> yeah, she's looking, she's looking for her master. That's really all you. Of have course to she need. is. Of course she is. She's. They're all looking for something. Pretty oh, much. Yeah. And that's, I heard I Primrose's story is actually pretty dark. Oh, it's God, very dark. Yeah. Ooh. See, so, yeah, that could be interesting. I think Primrose actually has a story that I could engage with. You'll probably not like it, but you'll probably get engaged with it. Um, and actually, the second part of her story takes place in uh, another snowy town, Still Snow, which is even prettier than the first one. Oh, yeah. And I think there's the thief who's looking for the viper, I want to say. Oh, no. You're no, that up. was the apothecary. He was looking for the viper. He was looking for the viper. No, uh, Therion's looking for Dragonstone's. Uh, which is funny because actually there's a subquest in the uh, when she when they mentioned Dragonstones, I'm thinking, oh god, these are dragon eggs. But there is actually a, a character in a subquest who is looking, who has <laughs> was gifted a dragon egg, and she's as you go along, uh, as you go about your business, you you encounter her from town to town, and she's trying to hatch this egg. Apparently, a dragon told her in a dream to hatch it. So I'm just like really fascinated with how this is going because she seems like kind of an airhead, and yet she was gifted with, with this really precious egg so i I just want to know how that's going to end she almost dropped it first of all that's how you meet her (laughs) yeah i I love how the the side quest itself is called mother of dragons so mother of dragons yeah of course they know what they're doing there god (laughs) if you're given a an an egg and you're told in a dream to hatch it maybe that's a bad idea (laughs) or it could be awesome because you get to ride a dragon yeah (laughs) or you could be precipitating the end of the world yeah but it'd be a really cool end of the world I mean, not necessarily. What if it takes you <laughs> over in a kind of terrifying body horror kind of process? You oh, don't geez, know. Like Dragon Quest. Uh, no, not Dragon Quest. That was um, Breath of Fire 5. Yeah. There that was kind of horrifying. There you go. <laughs> so while Ophelia is just okay, I you you guys were mentioning that you didn't think she was quite as good with the apothecary. I I think that I liked the, her offensive skills better than the apothecary so far. And uh, yeah. I especially like her recruiting ability. Everybody in it's this great. game gets the ability to recruit. They have their own special ability. I'm right. not ex- entirely sure what the apothecary actually does with their ability. 
He <laughs> actually talks to people, and when he talks to people, uh, he can sometimes get a hidden item, or he can get information that becomes vital for like a side quest. So I uh, see. It's pretty good. Okay, that's useful. Uh, yeah. The the hunter can provoke people. Yeah. Why do and... you Why do you want to provoke people? Because it was like your 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 thing, your um, reputation in this village may go down if you decide to provoke this person. I'm like, why would I do that? No, it actually goes down if you lose. Ironically. Oh. Yeah. So Only it's just kind of a like down. here's a here's a method of grinding. And it's not even that. It's basically, um, number one, you may need the situation for a sub-quest. Again, uh, there was actually an instance where I came across a guy who was harassing a girl. And I'm like, hey, hey, Snow Leopard, go eat that guy. And that worked out really well. <laughs> uh, but there's also a moment uh, quite recently I ran into where um, there was an NPC standing in front of an orphanage, right? And she wouldn't move. She's talking about how great her orphanage is. And I'm like, if you're standing in front of this orphanage and blocking me, I bet there's some really good treasure behind you. So I got, I got the snow leopard to attack the, the matron of the orphanage, and it worked. She moved, and I went in the orphanage, and it was it had a good treasure inside of it. And the kids were telling me how much they loved their mom. <laughs> we just beat her up, but whatever. We just beat her. Oh well, she's lying outside. You want to bring her in? <laughs> yeah, a lot of times also you'll find like you'll use Alfin and learn about a hidden treasure, and it happens to be behind one of those people that are blocking a door. So you have to beat yeah, her up in order too. to get through it. Yeah. So it it does feel like the most limited of uses for for the path actions compared to the others. Yeah, yeah, because uh, uh, I think uh, Ulbrich has uh, he can challenge people to a duel, which is the same idea, except he can use his swords and and weapons, whereas uh, Hannet can only use her beasts. So she's at a bit of a disadvantage unless you really know what you're doing with your beasts. Yeah. So with Ophelia's recruiting tool, so you can walk up to somebody, recruit them. And they are kind of part of your party. You can summon them yes. a, a fixed number of times and they will use an ability. And mm-hmm. so I was summoning this one cleric from her hometown who turned out to be very useful. Yes, I know. Because that cleric not only used this ability that raised my character's defenses, which were very was very useful. Uh-huh. Uh, this cleric also used an ice attack that hit all of my opponents and against certain bosses would lower their kind of their threshold until they get to the point where they're breaking. So I effectively had an extra attacker, which went a long way toward dealing with a couple of boss battles that I had to fight. It was very useful. So I was like, I like you. I like you. I like your ability. Yeah. (laughs) I actually have to say I use her instead of Alfin uh, more often, even though I do like Alfin. (laughs) Oh, look, Ophelia wins again. (laughs) Well, Ophelia also... um, I'm a very insecure player, so I like heal spells that heal everyone. And uh, also, I gave you can give people secondary jobs in this game. So I gave Ophelia the second job of a huntress, and that really boosted her attack. So she she's a pretty good character right now. When do you get the ability to add a second job? Uh, uh, anytime, honestly. Basically, all you have to do is yeah. one area beyond where you start, you'll find a shrine that usually contains the job of the character you happen to be near. So if you're in the Hanitz area and you go one area beyond find the find the shrine, you'll find the Huntress job. So you could give that to anybody else. Uh, so it's it's funny because I because I spent so much time just getting the first chapters. I didn't find those secondary jobs until much much later. <laughs> me me too. Yeah, and uh, basically, when you're if you're on the map, um, keep an eye out for uh, on your radar for like columns. Like if you see three columns, that means that there's a shrine nearby. 
So the flip side of the really nice environmental graphics is the character graphics are so simple as to almost be static and actually look very low detail in very low resolution, which really starts to stand out as you get kind of further into the game. The actual spell effects are pretty good, I think, but I find the sprites almost distractingly simple. Are you talking about the enemy sprites or the characters? Both. Both. I actually... Uh, on the overworld, it's okay. It's fine. But they're, they're very low detail. Very low detail. When you're in an actual battle... Well, first of all, the size difference, I'm kind of like, okay, whatever. It doesn't look super great, but I'll live with it. Like when you summon the kind of detailed snow leopard guy from Hanit, and he's five times her size... And he has no animation. He just kind of appears on the screen and does his thing and goes rawr and slashes everybody and then disappears, which I get it. Like they're operating on a budget. They're looking as they want to look as stylized as possible, but it is exceedingly simple outside of the environments. It's almost like they sank their entire budget just into the environments. I kind of took that, like, the, the look of the battles and that size difference and what have you. I really took that as a tribute to Final Fantasy VI. It's because... like a, I mean, is it a tribute or is it just a, uh, like, they're just figuring out a way to kind of get around the fact that they can't really do complex animations with this yeah. look? Could be it's, both. It's a fine line, but the one thing yeah. I noticed is that enemies, I, I was, I'm still finding enemies I haven't seen before. And you'll have you'll have enemies that would be like such and such one, such and such two, such and such three. And they won't be just different colors. They'll actually have added armor or a different look to them completely where I don't even realize that they're part of that same line of enemies until I actually look at their name. And yeah, they don't really move, but that extra detail about having just all these different spites, sprites for the enemies does tell me there's at least a little bit of effort going into yeah. that, that I didn't that say idea. there was no effort. I was saying that... It just looked pretty simple to me. I, I don't know. I, 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 I see I, what you're coming from, but... Yeah. I mean, the, the enemies are often just a blob of pixels. They're, they barely mm. have any discernible features to them. Are you playing on a big TV or are you playing on handheld? I'm playing on the handheld. Yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't really see are it like that. Are you playing on TV? No, I'm playing I, on handheld. I okay. play on TV mostly, and... They pop for me, but maybe that's because I'm just I am playing off the TV. So I just it, it's hard to tell the difference between like a rat characters like the rat soldiers or something like that. Ratkin. Yeah, like okay, yeah. So you have it's like okay, that's definitely a frog, and that's definitely a rat person or whatever. And the bosses are big, yes, and detailed. Like that, there was a cool venomous snake guy that I was fighting uh, in the apothecary's initial quest. Uh, I, I'm. I think the bosses look fine for the most part. I'm just saying that the regular enemies, for the most part, they don't move much, and mm-hmm. and it's fine. I'm not complaining much. I'm just saying that this looks like a compromise with the all of the attention to detail that was put into the environments. It's not wholly distracting, but I did notice it. Hmm. Yeah, I I can't say I really like. I don't know. I just looked at that and said, "Oh, okay." You know, they're they're doing Final Fantasy VI here. Okay, and I just kind of moved on. <laughs> yeah. That's but much Final Fantasy VI <laughs> is way more animated and way more detailed. Um, like the way so. the characters move, the way that the expressions on the characters' faces, uh, their their attacks, they look way better than this. I'm sorry. Really? Yeah, I, the animate the character the enemies aren't very animated at all, but the right. actual protagonists are way more animated. 
I'm not. And frankly, the enemies in Final Fantasy VI are way more detailed than this as well. Probably because it doesn't go for that kind of 3D look. It's going for straight 2D. Mm-hmm. That's just my opinion. I'm just. <laughs> I think Final Fantasy VI. I mean, in fairness, we are comparing it to one of the best looking games of the Super Nintendo era and True. one of the most artistic and beautiful games ever. And mm-hmm. I may be holding it to too high a standard. I'm just saying that while I find the environments gorgeous, the actual characters didn't do much for me. Right. And I can, That's fair enough. I can definitely see that where you expect this level of detail after seeing the environments, especially like these are some of the best water effects I've ever seen in a game. Yeah, they're pretty gorgeous. Oh, but- yeah. The water effects are great. Yeah, and like I said, I love the kind of pseudo-3D effect. Uh, I, I think that is really striking, and I think the, what, that's one of the reasons that, one of the things that got people talking about Octopath Traveler immediately was that yeah. it hewed toward that retro 2D look, but it added a cool twist to it, and it wasn't super-duper simple, and it wasn't cliché. Like, right. at this point, certain pixel art looks just are super cliche. If it had been your typical cliche pixel art look, I doubt it would have gotten a second yeah, look. Absolutely. The fact that it really stood out in that way, like, made it turned heads uh, and good on them. Yeah, I agree. Mm. It really does, like, the environments, at least, really strike that, that balance between that reminds me of, like, you know, the glory days, the SNES, but I also you know, just notice that, that visual flair. Like we were mentioning the water and just thinking, I'm playing this game and thinking, man, what about that guy who used to like comment on every single game on the Wii's library and add like comments like the water looks really good in this game. Just he would buy every single game available on the eShop and say <laughs> the water looks nice. I, I was thinking of that guy when I played this game. <laughs> water Blow has often mind. been a marker. Water has often been a marker of graphical fidelity over the years. Yeah, I it mean, has. I remember the first time seeing water in, like, Super Nintendo games. Like, the water in Super Mario World. Oh, my God. It looks so good compared compared to the static world water of Mario 3. And then on to the water in Wave Race where it was sloshing and splashing. That was really nice. And then the first time you wake up in the ocean in Bioshock and see the, the lighthouses, one of the most striking and beautiful moments I've ever had in a video game. Mm-hmm. So water. seeing the fire reflected against the, the water, that was really cool. Oh my oh, God, yeah. that was amazing. But <laughs> yeah. Water rules. Uh, I will say that I've enjoyed the soundtrack for the most part. The soundtrack's gorgeous. The soundtrack's pretty great. Yes. Yeah. So what do you think, Derek? I mean, this is some of the best stuff. I, I, I You get into some of these later chapters and they can get so haunting and moody and really sell like, the finality of a certain chapter or whatever might be going on. You really do. They, it adds so much personality to the game. And I, ju- I just ended up appreciating it the entire time. I, I had sound cranked on my, on my TV. <laughs> yeah. I have my headphones on. There's actually a really nice saxophone piece that plays during some of the, like, you know, sadder, more dramatic moments of the game. And I just, I just love that piece so much. Mm-hmm. Careless whisper, like bring it on. Baker <laughs> <laughs> street. Go. <laughs> a really nice touch actually with this with the soundtrack is as you get to later chapters the battle music changes yes oh i yeah. love that in a game mm-hmm. yeah i'm so appreciative of that and it's, it's so sad how few rpgs do that well i mean you have you have to spend your memory somewhere right yeah and <laughs> perhaps they were spending it on music instead of character sprites and that's a valid creative choice yeah i think frankly i think it pays off Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, think about The World Ends With You, another game that has sprites that, that are much better yeah. looking than this game. Uh, it 
has it, it shows the illustrates the progression of the game by changing up the music the battle music as right. you get into later chapters and it can really drive home the growth and progression of your characters so that's pretty cool that it has different battle themes i really like the boss theme i, mm-hmm. I find it extremely mm-hmm. catchy uh it ha- it's not just pure piano like i am setsuna <laughs> I feel so bad for dunking on that soundtrack because it it was good for what it was, but I remember playing it and saying, oh, okay, so we're we're just going to have a piano, are we? Because after a certain amount of time, you think, okay, this is the way it's going to be, huh? All all right. Yeah, and compared to I Am Setsuna, by the way, this game is way more distinctive and way more interesting. And I like that it has its own battle system versus just kind of riffing on the Chrono Trigger one. Yeah, absolutely. It's mm-hmm. definitely its own game. It, it it knows what it is, and it, I know that some people aren't going to be into the whole like you know separate stories thing, or maybe they won't even like the battle system. But I I really enjoy it for what it is. And I think the battle system improves as you go along, as you get the more complex actions that you have to do. Like you still you still fall into a certain pattern. Like I was always just building up to the max. Uh, strength for my spells and then unleashing the ultimate attack and that usually wiped out most enemies but then you get to bosses and you're still trying to do that but then you're dealing with the fact that they are hitting so hard or changing things up like they the way bosses mess with their weaknesses and mess with you can get pretty crazy in there like my my, in the final boss against um uh, in Primrose's story, I literally had a moment where I was down to just one character with maybe 100 HP, and it, thankfully I was able to revive all the others and get back to where I needed to be, but it was some close moments and just makes it stand out when you are like thinking on the fly, what do I need to do, what do I need to take care of, and oh geez, I got to do this and balance this, and it really does come together and get a, become a lot of fun, which is good because again, I was kind of bored by it just by going from... Um, Chapter one, the chapter one, the chapter one in the beginning. Yeah, yeah. Um, also, bosses change up their patterns as they go along, and they become more dangerous as they go along. And uh, they can, if you're not careful, they they can uh, kick your ass. Oh yeah. Yeah, there's a definitely an appealing strategic element to it. It's like your typical RPG in that a lot of the bog standard rando battles, which are fairly frequent are easy to get through in, like, I don't know, less than a minute, probably about 30 seconds. The boss battles can be pretty intense. In fact, I had to retry Ophelia's boss battle multiple times. because it's a little, it's, the first a one. Hard. That was a yeah, hard be- battle. Well, because, first of all, I didn't really understand her her mechanic at first, so it was just her. Right. So I didn't have a helper. And I don't think I had equipped the I- the items I had because I'm just a total noob, I guess. And <laughs> so I was having to work really hard to stay, keep my HP up and everything, uh, and keep work whittling down his mm-hmm. uh, his break points. And then and then halfway through the battle, all of a sudden he summons basically a minion that counts down and explodes like a bomb. Oh yeah, that asshole. And does a, a lot of damage. Yes. And your initial reaction is to want to kill it. Yes. But meanwhile, the boss is charging up really hard attacks as well. And so you're going, oh my god, help, no. So I found that the best solution was just to focus down the boss and ignore the bomb. And just make sure that my HP was high enough that I could be able to take uh, the the explosion when it happened. Yeah, or you could defend. I mean, defending didn't help much against the explosion. It saved maybe 30 HP. 
Oh. And meanwhile, uh, the boss, the other boss was un- unleashing its strongest attack as well. And usually that one two punch was enough to finish me off. Poor Ophelia. I'm just picturing her getting her pummeled. <laughs> meanwhile, the bomb, the bomb kept respawning. Yes. Oh, so your initial reaction was like, oh, kill the bomb. Nope. Bomb keeps nope. coming back. <laughs> yeah. No point. And bosses, I found, were pretty smart. They A lot of times it felt like they knew exactly where to target my characters. Like, you're going to take down this character so you can't do this because if they get knocked out, well, they just lost all their boost points. And that is yes. aggravating. <laughs> oh, yeah. Uh, having your characters broken is always bad news. Yeah, when they get knocked unconscious. And um, by the way, when you get Clyde, he, ha- he learns a skill that really reduces uh, random encounters. So hooray for that. Oh yeah, yes. Cyrus. Cyrus, yeah, yes. That's it. Yeah. Cyrus yeah, is also I, you were talking character. about that in the last episode. That's nice. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, cool. there's, there's a lot going on with these systems and I think that more than anything has been kind of keeping me engaged with Octopath Traveler. That and the really nice soundtrack and the really nice backgrounds. Mm-hmm. Uh, what really stands out to you guys? I guess I'll start with you, Derek. I mean, it's sort of those elements all coming together and you get these wonderful vistas, you get this great music, and then you have these stories that really do start to affect you. They find these little ways to just get you involved and concerned. And it's it's a lot more personal, which you don't see a ton of in RPGs. Like you'll get personal side quests on the side, you know, to flesh out a character. But this is, these stories are what they all, they're all about. And you get to see, and they, I like how each, character has a theme and those mm-hmm. chapters all follow that theme very closely and like the second one the first one is like here's what they're all the, the first chapter is always here's what they're all about second chapter is confirming what they're all about and <laughs> as they go around and you know sort of doing what you need to do third chapter question those beliefs question right. what you think uh fourth one resolution and it, it's very it's, it's a very complete story each time which makes me excited to eventually get back and experience all the rest how about you nadia uh, i i echo a lot of those thoughts um the backgrounds as we've already talked about extensively are are very pretty um i do like how cleverly the backgrounds are used when you're going from place to place like in between towns you usually travel on a dirt road and if you travel on a dirt road and consult signposts you you, sh- you won't get lost you'll be fine but if you go off the beaten path that's when you kind of have to be that's when the game plays visual tricks on you. And if you like kind of go get beyond those tricks, there's an excellent chance you'll find a treasure chest or, or something that has like a, a really good reward in it. So I, I thought that was a really clever use of the, the game's pop-up effect. Um, I also like the personalized stories that uh, go to interesting places. I, I like the, I like how it kind of goes with the battle system. I enjoy the battle system, you know, even though you, you get into a lot of fights, I'm not quite bored with, just that satisfaction that comes with breaking through an enemy's defenses. Uh, I like the script. I find the characters are, they're, they're a lot of fun to just kind of hang out with, for lack of a better term. <laughs> Especially the Huntress with her these and the thous and the thouis. <laughs> Brings me she back to Chrono like, Trigger and Frog. It's not even like the and thou. It's like some real old ass English going up on uh, Yeah, up seriously. Something like that. Like the thous are easy to re- read. It's, um, so I'm trying to remember some of the other words she says, but they are wild. <laughs> well, it's like whenever she like gets into battle, she's like, letting my arrow fly in true. She, ca- yes. she likes the letter N. <laughs> yes, she no, really exactly. <laughs> you were mentioning the getting off the beaten path. 
I found that whenever I got the beaten pa- off the beaten path, I tended to get lost because the paths could blend in with the backgrounds a little bit, which maybe is my only complaint about the environments was at times it was a little hard to find the road or where I was supposed to be going. And then, of course, as always, when you get lost, random, random encounters, encounters wear their mm-hmm. ugly head and they start to get really annoying. I actually um, had a little bit of a problem with that, but uh, I lightened up the screen a little bit. You can do that in the options and... That helped a bit. That helped quite a bit, actually. And I think there's also an option to turn off corner shadows. Whatever that does, I don't know if that would help you. Turn uh, off I know corner the, I know shadows. The, I know this screen looks a little dark, so that might be... I had a little bit of a complaint about that. The, the screen always looked a little dark where I couldn't get the details I was hoping for. So maybe it alleviates that. I haven't didn't really look at the settings that much to see if there was anything to work with that. So... That's interesting, but I, I do agree. It can be a little tricky to find those areas or go the right way. And be, when you're not going the right way or just getting like turned around, being punished by those random encounters can be really aggravating. Uh-huh. Uh, the mini map does help a lot. Like it's not it specific, does. but it just points you in the right direction. Like I know there's something over here, so I'm going to keep looking. And yeah, it yeah, it helps. Help. Uh, it helps enough in the map. The map isn't amazing, but it helps enough. Yeah, I found it interesting. They actually went for such a kind of an archaic map versus a, uh, a map that tells you exactly where you are at all times. Yeah, you're having to constantly kind of flip back and forth and kind of be like, is that my character symbol? Where am I exactly? <laughs> well, I was even, able to figure it out, but... Yeah, basically uh, every diamond that you see on the map is kind of a junction, and that's where you usually find a signpost that tells you where you want to go. But generally, if you look at the map and you're like, oh, this town is south, well, just generally head south, and they'll get there eventually. Mm-hmm. You just look for the town symbol, and you'll yeah. make it. So as I already mentioned, I'm still a little on the fence about whether or not I should make the leap and buy this game in its entirety. I've been reasonably enjoying it uh so far it certainly hasn't been boring me uh mm-hmm. i've been accruing a party uh i like the battle systems involved i, I like the, the graphics are nice enough um uh, sprite complaints aside and it's not setting my world on fire but neither is it boring me so but i i want to know as you two have been playing for god knows how many hours 40 hours or more each should I make the leap? What do you think, Nadia? I would say yes. I think um, you will really appreciate how the systems work as the game gets more difficult. What about you, Derek? Yeah, I'd agree. I think you should. I think you would enjoy if you checked it out. I think you'll enjoy the battle system. You'll you will find a character you really get behind and enjoy their story, uh, and just want to see more of. And you might even appreciate characters you didn't before. Right. Uh, and honestly, it makes a good side game. I really do think the way this game's designed to be played is maybe do a chapter a night or maybe two chapters a night if you're getting really into it. Because it only it will only take you about an hour or two to get through a single chapter, even mm-hmm. the later ones. So it's really good to just like, ah, I need an hour to kill. Let's play let's play some Octopath and get make just a little bit more progress. Yeah, I agree. It's very, very much a, a portable RPG. Mm-hmm. In a good way. Yeah. Yeah, that's been my kind of thing. I, like, I'll be just hanging out with uh, my friends in the living room or something, and they'll be watching Brooklyn Nine-Nine or whatever, and I'll be like, do-do-do, playing around, playing Octopath Traveler on my on my uh, Switch. I haven't had to think about it too much. Of course, the one drawback is that I haven't been playing with my gr- headphones, so... 
<laughs> I've been losing out on the, the music a little bit, which is kind of a common thing with me and handheld systems in general, as I often end up turning off the sound because I'm playing in a public space or something. Right. And mm-hmm. so you lose that benefit. Would you, what do you guys prefer? Do you think it's better on the handheld or the, or the TV? I think it's better on handheld myself. Handheld. Um, I like just plugging in my um, headphones and just kind of curling up and going for it. It doesn't look like the kind of game that you would want to play on a TV. Not so much. Uh, I've had very little desire to play it very much on the television. What do you think, Derek? You've been playing on TV. Yeah, I mostly played on TV, mainly for recording purposes, so I can keep track of everything and do all that. So I mainly stuck with TV, and I I think it works well. It uh, gives you that sense of playing SNES as a kid, just because of the graphical style. But it it probably does lean better toward handheld, just because, again, the way that you can play a game and quickly just get through it. And um, it just makes mm-hmm. it be- a little better suited for the handheld experience. But I like uh, with, uh, as with the switch for most games, it is nice that you have the option where, you know, I feel like seeing this on the big screen and seeing this, sn- these snow effects just blow me mm-hmm. away. That'd be nice. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so I-, I think you're in good shape, no matter, you know, whatever your preference is. All right. So it sounds like ultimately you two are, fairly high on Octopath Traveler and would recommend it in general. Yeah, I would. Absolutely. Definitely. All right. Octopath Traveler gets the thumbs up from the blood god. Yeah, I I think I'll spring for it. It it is a little expensive, though. Isn't it full full price? Oh, yeah. There's been a lot of uh, convention about that. It's it's like... It looks like a 3DS game, let's be honest. No, it doesn't. What do you... It it does. It really doesn't. I don't know know what you're even... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> it can run like, on the 3ds no it can't Mm-mm. yeah it could Mm-mm. no it couldn't <laughs> why do you say that i mean the sprites are extremely simple and yes it's in hd but you could totally make you could totally shrink this down onto the 3ds you're telling me that those 3d those really simplistic 3d effects are cannot possibly be run on the on the 3ds maybe oh, the sprites could. can I mean, but you'd be taking a hit in quality and i mean i even if it is on 3ds like I'm sure people complain about how it co- how much it costs there too. Okay, I mean, I don't like, know like how much technical uh, work went into the actual look of the game, so I'm not going to be like, oh, it's super simple to be able to improve yeah. the graphics or whatever. <laughs> I don't know like how much work went into the individual pixels and all that. And I right. agree that it has a striking look, but it doesn't look that much better than a 3DS game, in my opinion. What were you saying, Derek? I I mean, granted, you got the games like Bravely Default on there and the you mm-hmm. know fully three D graphics and whatnot. So it, you could make it work, but I'm sorry, I prefer it on the Switch. <laughs> yeah, I, I like I, I really like the high resolution screen. I like how it makes the game look. And there's also just the fact no matter how this game looks, it's still you're looking at sixty hours or more of good RPG action. I think it's is worth paying up for just because it doesn't have a triple A sort of aesthetic to it. I think what jumped out at people is that people are used to now spending full price. If they're going to pay 60 bucks, they're buying God of War, for example. The yeah, full-on it's really, it's a bit blockbuster of a experience. And if they're playing a kind of sprite-based RPG, yeah, even though you're getting 60 hours and it takes a lot of development time still, they're used to paying well, 39.99 at the most, maybe 15 maybe even as low as 15 bucks for a downloadable game or 20 bucks. So, like, playing the full $60 is like, whoa, okay, dang, uh, the expectations are just different. But maybe they shouldn't be, because you're getting 
you're getting 60 hours of gameplay here from a fairly complex game. Like, full voice acting. It's a shame because I watched everyone kind of like, oh, God, I'm not paying much tr- that much for Sushi Strikers, which is a really cute, fun game that I really enjoyed. And uh, nobody that, that was too expensive. Sorry. <laughs> Now, it, that was also another long game that gave you a lot of content, and it was like, oh, no, it should be on mobile for, like, free. No, it shouldn't. I don't think it should be free, but maybe 10 bucks. <laughs> 10 bucks? Oh, no, no, it's not a 10 the, there's too much. There's way too much production value in that game for only really 10 is. bucks. Allow yeah. me to devalue games even further. I'm part Please of the problem. <laughs> <laughs> You're well on your way here. All right. Let us know what you think in the comments about... About Octopath Traveler since it's out now and you can play it. And by the time that this podcast is up, everybody will have had a solid weekend to enjoy it. Before we go, Derek, do you want to plug something over on Game Explain? I mean, just the channel itself. I get, I suppose, uh, check us out if you want to see analyses on uh, different games. As of right now, I'm working on a Pokemon Let's Go analysis, but otherwise, uh, uh, we're you know always discussing something something talking about something where we have our weekly smash brothers discussions now where we talk about all of the different um uh thing things that they're showing each week and giving our opinions on them and just sort of talking about it so we always have there's always something on our channel to check out <laughs> yeah i actually watch it regularly my husband and i so there there's another book oh, for you thank you thank you i'm up i'm back into pokemon go so i'm warming to pokemon let's go Let's go got me back into go because I'm like, oh gosh, I probably should play a bit more and have like Pokemon ready to. That new trailer over. is ridiculous and how cute it is. Oh my god! Like just, I saw the the starters kind of like you know waddling behind you as you walk, and I'm like, oh Jesus Christ, they've done it now. <laughs> yeah, people have been begging that for years to have the following Pokemon back. They have it do. back from Heart Gold Soul Silver. Because yeah. God forbid you have it in the rest of the games. I <laughs> can't do that. That's not the Pokemon way, Cat. It's not the law. It's, I mean, well, if you go to another region, it's not the fashion for the Pokemon to be following you behind. So we've decided to take this feature out. It's not popular. <laughs> God. All right. Derek, thanks for joining us on the show. And yeah, please go check out Gabe Explains' review of Octopath Traveler and check out Nadia's as well. All right, continuing with our top 25 count RPG countdown, this week's entry is number 22, and let's listen to a clip from that right now. Well, well, looky who made it back in one piece. How in Santa Monica, kiddo? <laughs> I can't imagine you did. Probably too busy getting pushed around by every vampire with a week of seniority over you, am I right? Yes, this week's entry is... Vampire the Masquerade Bloodlines, the 2004 RPG by Troika Games that is based on the White Wolf pen and paper RPG, which RPG.net called possibly the second most important role-playing in existent game in existence after Advanced Dungeons and Dragons. It kicked off the World of Darkness series, which is the Ying to D&D's Yang. Joining me to talk about it is my good friend Ryan Allen, who is a huge fan of Vampire the Masquerade. He's not in the industry. He's not a game developer or anything like that, but he is a fan. He, we got the the real gamer's voice for this time. So here we go. Ryan, you love Vampire the Masquerade. When we I started talking about it ahead of this episode, your partner, Ina, was just going, oh my God, I love it for this reason and this reason. I've played it so much. And you're not alone. A lot of people love this game. What about it? What's your history with it? And what about it really stands out to you? 
Well, I come out of the kind of traditional comic book experience of the uh, the comic and games. Were uh, you a tabletop role player? I I was kind of I was halfway sunk into it. I had Nerd. one foot in all the time. Well, yes. There were, we had a, a couple of growing up in, in Sacramento. We had a couple of really amazing comic book shops that all had kind of a tabletop investment to them. They had a couple of tables in the back. Uh, and there were huge groups that came in, but none of them that I knew very well. So I was very much a wallflower to a lot of the D&D, a lot of the the White Wolf uh, tabletop, and there were lots and lots of games that are going on all the time that I you know, I had a great time uh, watching from the sidelines and watching these experienced uh, DMs weaving these incredible stories, but none, no one that me or my friends knew very well to be like, hey, do you have room in your next campaign? Uh, and so... White Wolf was always really uh, exciting and like the modern aspect of it, the the, uh, the bridge midway bridge between medieval and cyberpunk uh, was this this space that felt very familiar. We were, you know, all of my friends at the point were were listening to industrial music and uh, into metal like Lacuna Coil, which is featured in in Bloodlines <laughs> and things like that. Were you did you have black nail polish and were you wearing a trench coat? I was just a sh- one shade of hair ah. color dye away from it. But so close. Let all of the uh, all of the yearbook photos have all been purged from existence. Did, did, at, did at any point were you driving down the streets of Sacramento, singing "Crawling in My Skin"? These wounds will not <sighs> heal. Can I take the fifth? I think I'll take the fifth. <laughs> uh, but so uh, th- that said, everyone who was running White Wolf is is that cliche to an exponent it was it was amazing to see but par- partially for that reason what watching white wolf games were super intimidating for that same reason uh so none of my friends uh none of my friends really got into that space as much but we were always like what's what's our way into this and it turned out when in 2004 when bloodlines came out we were immediately like oh oh it's this like we were all big gamers we we played like a lot of of early uh, Quake and Counter Strike, like that, we were in the in the computer rooms of those comic book shops. Uh, so when Bloodlines came out, it was like, oh, this is this is our experience. Like, we can get the the DM, the real DM from someone else's campaign. Uh, White Wolf approved, and White Wolf was notorious about keeping their license close to their chest during that time. Uh, there were there were tons of proposals for video games that they just passed on from experienced developers as well, and studios that were just like looking to get into this narrative space and they all fell flat with the company. So when this came out, we were like, oh, oh, wow. And uh, we were by no means disappointed. Like it was on the source engine, which was unexpected, although, you know, it caused some complications for the release because it had to wait for Half-Life 2 to come out. Uh, but it was my recollection was that Half-Life 2 actually came out first. And in fact, it kind of screwed over Troika a little bit because Half-Life 2, because uh, Valve wanted Half-Life 2 to come out first because they wanted their game to be the showcase for the engine, which meant that they had to wait. But then they also had licensing problems with Activision. It was a total mess that it, ended up killing Troika in the end. It is, absolutely. Uh, yeah, it was It was contractually obligated that Half-Life 2 had to release first. Uh, and so as a result, Troika, which was already running out of money and looking for new investment at that time, was trying to... like heave their way to the finish line with this and uh they ended up collapsing in in february of 2005 just a couple of months after the release of bloodlines yeah it was a real pity because troika of course was 
from RPG Legends. It was founded by Tim Kaine and two others. The Troika refers to the three developers from Fallout mm. who ended up coming over the game. And ultimately, they ended up developing three games. That was Temple of Elemental Evil. It was Arcanium Obscura. And ultimately, it was Vampire Bloodlines. They were going to develop a fourth, and that game might have been Fallout 3. Mm-hmm. They had a tech demo, but Bethesda outbid them. And looking at Fall, uh, Vampire the Masquerade, it's really interesting to imagine an alternate universe in which they developed Fallout 3 instead. I imagine it would have very janky shooting. <laughs> it would. We but would so not does be Bethesda's that. games. Come on. I mean, we, we would not be seeing the, the polished VAT system, but we <laughs> would be seeing a lot of flailing and trying to land shots. Uh, but you do see a lot of the parallels from the, the Fallout system uh, coming up in Bloodlines, the, there is a, a system of intimidation, seduction, and persuasion that you put points into that give you new dialogue options. Uh, really early Fallout fans from Fallout 2 and things like that, they're things that we don't normally see. If you drop your intelligence in Fallout to, to almost nothing, your entire dialogue changes, like me hit rock. Uh, and that kind of comes across in the options in, in Bloodlines as well. If you If you throw points into seduction hard, that can be your key uh, to, to unlock lots and lots of new options and pathways. Uh, at the same time, there's an entire race. Uh, the World of world of Darkness and Vampire the Masquerade, the tabletop, is based on uh, a number of races that are all, all fighting for control and trying to maintain this balance uh, while just trying to survive in the shadows of, of human recognition. The Masquerade refers to the play that goes on of trying to keep uh, vampire existence a secret. And so violating the masquerade, the masquerade draining someone in, in broad daylight uh, is is punishable sometimes by death. In fact, often by death, if you follow the game. It's Harry Potter with vampires. Yes. Of course, Vampire the Masquerade came out much before Harry Potter. Harry Potter came out in like 1980, 19, 1998. And yeah. Vampire the Masquerade, I believe, came out in like 1990. Yes. So, yeah. I mean, it predates Harry Potter. And of course, the concept of a of a fake world, a, a fantasy world layered on top of ours is certainly not yeah. unique to Harry Potter. But in the current context, when I saw Vampire the Masquerade, I saw the whole notion of the masquerade and people living in plain sight, but also having magical wars and everything. I mean, my mind immediately went to Harry Potter. Yeah, Muggles are a lot tastier in this world. Mm, muggles. So... You might be thinking, okay, this game was a total mess. It ended up tanking Troika at the end. It was notoriously buggy when it came out. I texted my friend Jeff Green, who was a reviewer at the time. He ran Computer Gaming World. And I was like, hey, did you play Vampire the Masquerade? And he was like, oh, yeah, we gave it a terrible review and Troika never forgave us for what we for what we said about it. And which didn't matter in the end because Troika ended up dying not too long after this. But... Yeah, so that was the general opinion at the time. It was like, really cool and interesting game, very buggy. A lot like Alpha Protocol, actually, which came out many years later. Alpha Protocol is kind of the spy version of Vampire the Masquerade, you could say. Uh, but the fans took over. The fans took over the game and are still patching it. And as of 2018, we're up to patch 10.0. Released just last month. Yes, so we're still going. And in fact, we installed it just last night and we were playing through it. We'll talk about that a little bit later. So let's talk a bit, a little bit about what this game actually entails. So when you start the game, and it was fun to watch it, you, enter, you answer kind of a questionnaire. It's sort of like Tactics Ogre, uh, which we we're talking about with number 24, 
where you have some questions like, what would you do in this situation? Who would you save? What, like, what, what would you do? And then after you answer those questions, you are assigned a class. And I mean, but there are lots of really interesting things going on. Like, for example, when you talk to the prince as a Malkavian, you'll hear a voice telling you, liar. Yes. Now, this was a thing that, this was kind of a thing back in like 2002, 2004. I mean, we had just seen Eternal Darkness, or mm. e- Eternal Darkness? Eternal Darkness. Come uh, out for, for the, the GameCube. For the GameCube. One of the truly best experiences one can have. Yeah, so it feels a little like Troika was taking some from that. And then the there's a radio show, which that was another big thing. It's like, oh my god, we can have a radio show in our game. Thank you, GTA. And the the radio show will start addressing you specifically, which I think is yes. pretty cool. And then you also have things like they'll walk up to a stop sign and go, "No, you stop." Yeah, your first your first dialogue, not monologue, when you when you leave your apartment as a Malkavian is with a sentient stop sign. <laughs> so I mean, the Malkavians are an interesting but also very hard uh, class to play because the dialogue choices are going to be kind of difficult to parse. Yeah. Yeah, there are situations where you risk violating the masquerade, uh, just interacting with humans because they can clearly see that something is wrong. Uh, you can go down particular pathways of of uh, dialogue that start to make them suspicious and kind of cut off your avenues for for certain problem solving later in the game. There's also the Nosferatu, which of yes. course is based on the knockoff of Dracula from Once Upon a Time. Where you're, of course, the super dif- disfigured version. And what's interesting about that is, like, it's practically a different game because you're in the sewers. But yeah, if for the for the Nosferatu, and for those who aren't familiar and and don't have the position to Google, think National Enquirer's Bat Boy. That <laughs> yes, is, exactly. That is yeah. Nosferatu to a T. And violating the masquerade just means standing out in public because you are super disfigured. You look like a vampire. So the only way to play Nosferatu is to spend all of your time in the sewer system below the game. Uh, And instead of feeding on humans, you feed off of rats instead. And that is much harder because as a game dynamic, blood is is, of course, super important to vampires. But you have a blood pool on which you draw to perform your uh, your spells and your abilities. And humans, of course, big sacks of blood. Uh, You can draw almost your entire pool back. Rats, on the other hand, you're only going to get a point or two back. So you have to feed constantly, feed in situations that are dangerous to you, and move totally sight unseen. It becomes a a much more difficult, much more stealth-oriented game. So I said earlier that Vampire the Masquerade is the ying to, or the yang to D&D's ying, in the sense that it, D&D is very much, a friend of mine once called it a beard and pretzels game, where you, you roll up your character, but ultimately you're not... You can do as much role-playing as you ultimately want to, but often you just roll the dice, do a check, uh, resolve an encounter, whatever. Whereas a game like Vampire the Masquerade is much more about narrative, and you can be rewarded in the way that you're role-playing. The role-playing aspect really comes to the fore in Vampire the Masquerade. Um, As our mutual friend Shivam Bhatt, who is like, he's a big cheese in Magic the Gathering now. I was texting back and forth with him about this game, and he was like, it was the first mass market LARP. People getting dressed up in their trench coats with their black nail polish and I don't LARPing. Know if they were and getting that dressed Running up. around in the woods, <laughs> singing Linkin Park, whatever. And that is reflected in this game where you have tons of uh, dialogue choices, uh, very, very in depth dialogue choices, the way that you interact with people. 
And Vampire the Masquerade is another one of those games where you have multiple endings. Not surprising because it came from the people who gave us Fallout. Um, unfortunately, while there are some interesting aspects to the end of the game, the end of the game is where the 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 abbreviated development time kind of really comes to the fore because it becomes much more combat heavy. You're relying much more on guns, and I would say that's one aspect that maybe holds this game from holds this game back from rising up further than it ultimately does on the list. Is that you can put a ton of effort into your speech checks and how you do your role playing and everything, but at the end of the day, if you don't, if you didn't put a, enough stuff into guns, you're a little bit screwed. You, it, there is a point where unless you have enough allocation into firearms, you can make it almost impossible to beat the game. There is at the very end, there is this matrix moment of walking into an elevator to face your final battle. Of course. And uh, and you you know if you are not you know strapped to the teeth at that point, then you're really going to find yourself in uh, against an, an already difficult battle. Uh, and and yeah, the the final battle is kind of weak. It's a it's a massive complaint. There is only so much that even the fan patch has done to be able to bring that into uh, into a little bit of a more satisfying experience. I mean, it, Fallout has the same problem. It, uh, yeah, it the does. Fallout three and four have the same problem. Yeah, quite. Just because I mean at the end of the day, you're running around awkwardly kind of using the VAT system or you're shooting a guy's head off with your with your gun. And the, this is a funny because at the beginning of Vampire the Masquerade, you have a guy, Jack, who's your mentor, going, guns are almost useless against vampires, LOL. Yeah. And guns are kind of awkward to use in this game. They're not very well uh, optimized. And so you, you're not naturally inclined to put points into them. And then at the end of the game, it's like, oh, you better use guns. Yeah, guns are kind of what you need. And so it's kind of a bummer if you've put everything into being a brawler. Yeah, combat in general, not super great. This game, where it really shines is where the the social interactions. And uh, the, one of the things, it has a karma meter. I mean, it's it's a humanity meter. So if you, if you spend too much, if you're too much of a predator, your humanity will go down. And you ha- stand a risk of going into a frenzy and attacking people at, vi- at will. And then all of a sudden, you may stand to have a chance of violating the masquerade, which is a problem, obviously. Um, yeah, the social interactions, definitely where it stands. Uh, premium on nonviolent solutions, I want to say. The games like Planescape Torment, actually, and Torment Tides of Numenera do a really good job of kind of obviating the need for combat and putting much more of a premium on this. But so many RPGs, it's, it often comes down to combat in the end Mm -hmm. yeah and and bloodlines to that end gave you the out there there are uh two situations even in the first chapter where uh you have small minor bosses that uh you have other people your your contacts your uh liaisons in the masquerade are telling you to eliminate these obstacles for for the camarilla and the obvious thing in front of you is to just get out your your katana which is handed to you very early on for badass points and uh it very easily through just a little bit of probing you're able to find uh a contact in their in their network that's willing to betray them or a small turf warfare battle where uh you and and two small other rival games can play a nice old game of let's you and him fight uh and so the the kind of the janky combat system is able to be pushed kind of aside 
at almost every opportunity. Like there are there are times where combat seems the obvious solution, but if you just push a little bit beyond, there are lots of very satisfying uh, dialogue situations where you can really get a full meaty experience for the world that's been put before you. Yeah, vampire politics are a big deal in this game. Like right from the start, you you fall in under the kind of the thrall of the of this prince um who is in a battle for power there's a civil war going on between two major clans and you kind of and as somebody who's been newly embraced rather than sired you've been embraced by somebody who i guess is kind of a dick and just decided to embrace you that your your sire in this game is intentionally uh not talked about much because siring in the white wolf system is super important it's like you there are people who have done lineage systems of the the sires and and children of of bloodlines going all the way back to the beginning of that story so it becomes a very expanded universe uh to that to that end though bloodlines is yeah we're 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 cutting you off from your uh from your bloodlines so you can develop your own story your own you can invest yourself into this role rather than oh i'm a child of this who was a child of that who was a child of that said you are really dropped into a situation of complete unknown. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're the the opening of the game, but is- it's a good excuse for everybody to kind of talk you through things. Like half the the initial part of the game is you meet this guy Jack, who we've already mentioned, and yeah. allow me to tell you about what being embraced is. Here, uh, go around that corner. There's a human there. Go suck their blood. Yes, smiling little Jack, voiced by the amazing John DiMaggio. Uh, who we the know voice acting in this game is p good is is above average even for its you know very much for its time but even now mm-hmm. uh like they they got some fairly big names recognizable names it's very weird to walk out and have bender yelling <laughs> you in the face about how uh how blood is your new heroine if i, w- I want to say that he's he was behind between jobs at that point he because was, futurama though. was not running at that time yeah so good on them for being able to get somebody like john DiMaggio, who's like established voice actor coming on in but <laughs> though of course that is tempered by the fact that because it is 2004 the way the people move this weird kind of lope it's very awkward, and the limbs are just a little too long, and the environments are a little too big, but the people are, while the people are a little too small, yeah, very much of its time, even with the graphical enhancements, I think it's pretty great, actually. And another reason why it suffered against the very polished Half-Life 2 at the time, like we had incredible human animations given to us by the Source engine, and then you go look at uh, Bloodlines, and it's like, oh, it's a bunch of marionettes, how fun. Yes, exactly. So at the end of the day, like, so you have to navigate this, this civil war, there are multiple factions, you ultimately, of course, end up in a faction, because what's an RPG without a good faction system, right? And, but it is very much a don't be too naive, don't be too trusting. You will be betrayed. In fact, Jack will betray you if you're not careful. Shit, don't don't sell him short. He can potentially betray you. Yes. Your your new mentor, uh, and and the proletariat white wolf community is just going to tear me a new one if I don't mention you know if we don't flesh out the rest of the roles here. You do get uh, the full gamut of all of the races in Bloodlines. You start out being guided by the Camarilla, but you very quickly run into the Bruja, which is the 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 salt of the earth, the blood running in the streets, uh, the revolutionaries of the vampire community, and they are under constant oppression by the high classes, and they are trying to organize and and rise up in the the Santa Monica and Los Angeles 
areas, which is where the game takes place. Yeah, I should mention that it takes place in four main locations, uh, Santa Monica, downtown, Chinatown, and Hollywood. Yes, all within the greater Los Angeles area. Yeah, which is pretty cool. Like, it's a rich... I hate Los Angeles in general. My apologies to LA listeners. I live in San Francisco. Well, yeah, the San Francisco Bay Area now. And it's so we have this big rivalry with LA and it's a very different experience going down there. But for some reason, it's a really rich video game location. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe because you don't get stuck in traffic. Yeah, quite true. And from from the people I've uh, I've talked to who love this game and who are in the LA area, it it kind of reads as uh, it, it paints it in a much more positive light. It's uh, the Santa Monica is not a uh, a place that gets mentioned in, in games very often. You can go have a bloody Mary. <laughs> Santa Monica is a big brunch spot if you happen to be in L.A. Yes, quite, quite. Yes. <laughs> uh, so let's talk a little bit about the best moments in it. Um, so I'm looking through the notes here and you added a whole bunch, Ryan. And one of them is like the end of chapter one, the Malkavian Baroness. God. There is a, an amazing moment where you spend a lot of the first chapter being tugged around by this, uh, by a, these pair of of vampire uh, ladies who are are very two sides of the coin. They're sisters, uh, and uh, one is this kind of uh, totally buttoned down uh, corporate uh, overlord who is running her father's empire and uh, who is just a complete monster and uh, a, a total domineer to you every time that you have a conversation with her. Whereas her sister is the literal schoolgirl dressed club going seductress who is trying to, you know, at, at year 3000 still going on 18 and it, who you meet at the club initially. And uh, you get into these huge situations and they are feuding against each other. One is, you know, Jeanette, the younger one is trying to sabotage her sister's art showing and uh, her sister is trying to essentially keep her under wraps the whole time because she's a, a family embarrassment and things like that. You are trying to, you know, as a as a good nouveau to this political system, you're trying to play one against the other, both for loot and money and and experience and things like that. But also, like, you're trying to make progress in the in the hierarchy of the political system. And at the end of the first chapter, you come to find that she is not, as you have expected, a Camarilla Baroness she's Malkavian and the two sisters are the same woman and are having this split personality battle against each other. And you have this moment of all these times where you think they've been in the same room together. You've been having conversations, but when, uh, when Jeanette tells you that, you know, her sister is, is just left. Uh, and, or, uh, when, when the, uh, the Baroness tells you that her sister is, uh, childishly locked herself in the bathroom and is re- refusing to speak with you. It's all a front for the fact that she is tearing herself apart by trying to maintain these, this facade, which is com- completely unlike any Malkavian that you've run into previously. It touches on abuse, too, because this is where it stems from. It does. It it stems from the fact that her, her father was abusive, and that comes out very much in, in the dialogue at the end of the game. And it's just a total eye-opener moment of, like, Oh my god. And it 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 very much you you are flashing back to all these moments before. And it's a it's a super satisfying experience, but you leave sort of shaken and and doubting what this game is going to to show you in the future. This was very much a time and I think this dovetails nicely into another thing that really makes Vampire the Masquerade stand out was it was pretty hardcore and it had 
some really interesting subject matter. It was actually fairly maturely written. Um, it really deals a lot with like sex and everything. Sex is a big thing because, of course, vampires, sex, it's always going to be a thing. And, of course, this was just a year before God of War where you started to have like hardcore, bloody sex and that kind of thing. This is when video games were in their... Where you you want to say that if the N64 was their awkward adolescent period, then this was definitely their like their 20s. Uh, the number of, of major characters, especially in late game that that are sex workers and things like that. It, there is a oh, it's interesting that they're taking on the subject matter, but also people wearing the schoolgirl outfits yes. with the boobs. Everybody is dressed very sexily. There's a there's a Toreador in one of the opening scenes that's decided to come to this massive meeting uh, this judgment of your sire who's being put to death for for un- for making you as a vampire and completely unauthorized. She's decided that this this meeting of the minds, she should just be in complete like this the the most stringent of lingerie or the the uh, skimpiest lingerie possible. And yet it was cool because I mean I, I think Ina said it best when she said that when she played it, she realized oh this that was the first time she realized that games could be for more than just kids yeah where this was the first video game adult experience where she felt like she wasn't being uh pandered to with gore when in previous uh first person shooters and things like that this was the first time that there was a mature story being being fleshed out in front of her you also mentioned the ocean house hotel which is really cool it's like going into a haunted house and you see ghosts flying past but then wait there's nothing here and i feel like that's where it comes closest to kind of being in that same mold as Half-Life 2. Because Half-Life 2 was the first, I want to well, the first Half-Life was the true first truly modern shooter in the sense that we understand it now. But yeah. Half-Life 2 took it to another level, right? In the way that you would be walking down and the world just felt alive all around you. And the parallel here is that the Ocean House for Bloodlines is Raven home for, for Half-Life 2. Yeah. Where the game makes this distinct change from run and gun solving problems uh to you are on the you are on your back foot and being terrified at every opportunity uh the ocean house turns very much into a traditional horror game at that point yes uh anything else that you want to like highlight so uh, well of course there's there's smiling jack and having him follow you around i mean there's there's part of why there's a, a clear call as to why he's been so fondly remembered uh but the game is takes a really interesting point as far as your relationship with humanity there are a number of very memorable uh human cohorts that you take on and one of the first one is heather poe who you liberate very early on from a blood bank uh because of of course all vampires run blood banks in uh in the the vtm universe uh you find her in the back room of this uh of this blood bank that's gone a little wrong and they've been draining her over the course of two weeks. And you can really touch on your humanity at this point. You can either drain her dry and leave her in the situation where, you know, you can get away with murder and, and fill up all of your blood and just, and return into the shadows. Or if you liberate her and keep her alive, she shows up at your apartment later and is like, I want to thank you. I don't know what to do now. I like I have no no family. I have nothing to go back to. And this very naive, very uh young human is now under your care and she can be very beneficial to you. You can mildly feed her uh, feed on her over time 
or you can bring her back to full health and and return her back into society. You can make these very complex decisions. But you can't embrace her, which I think is an interesting choice. Well, I mean, you haven't talked to the prince. Oh, right. You didn't get permission. Yeah, yeah there are forms. I'm sure that's that. another I'm sure that's another mechanic they just didn't want to put in the game because they just didn't have enough time. It is it would have been a wonderful thing to to be able to to sire your own, although that's that's unheard of for children so young, for kindred just fresh to this this new world to have children, to sire their own. Uh, well, of course, it makes total sense. With yes, them. quite. Yes, quite. Uh, so the reason I put this game on the list is just like the previous games, I'm looking for RPGs that stand the test of time. RPGs that people still think about today, still care about today. And I think Vampire the Masquerade is just a great example of that. The fact that you have such a passionate community around this the fact that it's still being supported now 14 years after its original release that's really cool it was just like nethack was also being supported not until pretty recently actually so i think that it's obviously touched something and it's transcended its difficult development and really come into its own over the years it's a great interesting rpg if you're willing to kind of overlook you know, the difficult things. I think everything on this, I think every entry we've had on this list so far, Final Fantasy V, Tactics Ogre, NetHack, all are like pretty inaccessible, uh, difficult to get into for people who aren't like super hardcore RPG fans, but also have so much to recommend them. I, when I was doing research for this discussion, I saw that it's almost a meme in the community. Oh, I heard about Vampire the Masquerade. Time to go reinstall it. <laughs> And uh, and when you brought it up, it was the first thing I did. I went out and on my machine, I you know, and it hasn't been that long. It's been about a year since I've played it the last time. I was interested to see when the nine nine patch came out, and it's the nine nine. Yeah, it's a charming game. There are lots and lots of games from that era that are still in my bucket list of games to beat, and I go back and I j- I cannot slog through them. Yeah, a lot of games from that era actually have not aged very well. Yeah. It's that between period where it was classically retro and very modern, and it's actually fairly, because so many of, it has a little bit of the modern trappings, but so many of the conveniences of later years are not there. Yeah. So, it's difficult. Like, you can't skip cutscenes in Vampire the Masquerade. Yeah. Not without going into and doing some file editing, or is cutscene skippable? Yeah. But all of the like the marionette animations and things like that are just like oh how charming what a what a thing of the era rather than when i just a couple of months ago came up and decided uh, on my my list of games to beat on my on my backlog turok came up and i was like oh no yeah, vampire the masquerade i mean you beat it just last year didn't you yeah i uh i got all the way through it i played this time as a tremere which I have to say has been one of my very favorite. They're they're blood uh blood magicians. They they have spent their entire racial lives studying the magic that comes out of uh why they drain. And as a result, you have spells that uh culminate at the very end of the game of taking being able to take humans or enemies and just pop them like blood balloons. Like they they become small little nukes if you are fighting. They become your your area of effect attacks. You choose one and they freak out and then explode. It it takes a lot of blood to use, but it's very worthwhile to end a large combat situation very quickly. 
Yeah. Uh, when it comes to that kind of thing, I just very replayable because of all the different vampire classes and how it so fundamentally changes the way you approach everything. Yeah. I think that's really cool, especially like the Nosferatu's practice, as, as was being pointed out, very different game if you just decide to be a Nosferatu. It's super challenging because there isn't a great indicator. There are lots and lots of mental landmarks that you're able to construct the map in your mind. And none of that is is available to you in the sewers. So you spend like the first third of the game just like, am I where I think I am? Am I going to pop up in the middle of the street right next to a policeman who's going to who's going to open fire on me and I'm going to take a masquerade hit? Or am I going to pop up in the alleyway where I know that I'm safe and where I can make it to my destination without, you know, getting spotted? So Vampire the Masquerade Bloodlines, I believe it's on Steam. It is on Steam. Uh, highly recommend that you go out and grab the the 10.0 fan patch. Yeah, highly recommend. It's essential. Yeah, sadly, I don't know what it is about White Wolf games, but they've often been very troubled over the years. Vampire the Masquerade was very troubled. Uh, there was an MMO. The World of Darkness MMO uh, was going to be picked up by CCP Games, the the makers of EVE Online. And, uh, and that did not get very far. It was, uh, from the discussions of it, it was super ambitious. And CCP saw the, the piles of money that were being bulldozed in every day from uh, EVE Online decided to make that their priority. CCP would have done a really interesting job with it because they would have made it a big sandbox. But at the same time, it's a World of Darkness is such a different animal from EVE Online. I'm not sure how it would have come off. Because EVE Online ultimately is a spreadsheet game where you're building building spaceships as effectively as possible. It's a huge, amazing, crazy sandbox with lots of interesting stories, but maybe not a lot in the way of actual role-playing or PvE, that kind of thing. I can imagine something akin to the Old Republic maybe working with a World of Darkness game where you have actual dialogue choices and it's playing out a, a whole story in a massively multiplayer context. But I don't think MMORPG was ever a great fit for this kind of game. It's At its heart, it's a single-player game where you are the protagonist and you are exploring this world, this really interesting, ambitious, fascinating world that has had, well, at that time, 13 years or so, now more than 20 years to kind of marinate. So. Yeah. The story that comes out of CCP is built almost out of a, a vacuum of lore. There's there's lore in the in the Eve Online universe, but it is not where the story the amazing stories that we keep hearing out of Eve Online come from. Uh, and there's a new White Wolf game coming out. It's Werewolf: The Apocalypse, made by Cyanide. Are you Team Werewolf or are you vam- Team Vampire? I will be Vampire till day I die. There are Werewolf: The Apocalypse is an interesting story, and I've seen lots of interesting campaigns built from it, but. When it comes to the the political intrigue, rather than the rip and tear of of uh, of werewolf masquerade, is is uh, my homeland. I, I was gonna make a uh, crap. I was gonna make a joke about the series that I can't remember. New Moon Twilight, <laughs> but I can't remember the name of the prota- the vampire protagonist. Team Jacob or Team whatever his name is. Uh, it's best left alone. Yes. We have no shiny vampires in Masquerade. Yeah, no, uh, sparkly. I want a, I want an MMORPG where you can play all, all kinds of vampires, ranging from Nosferatu to sparkly, but then sparkly. The only thing they can do is attractiveness. Edward would not last. Edward! Team Edward versus Team Jacob. Team Jacob all the way. No, just kidding. I don't like Twilight at all. <laughs> but I am Team Vam- uh, I am Team Werewolf till I die. Uh, then I hope Cyanide pays out in dividends to you. It looks like a really interesting game. The only, the first thing I did in Skyrim was I immediately became a, a werewolf, 
and I got married to Werewolf Girl. That, I, I think that's that's a little bit influenced by how good that story was. Mm, yeah. How satisfying it was. Being a vampire is really awkward in Elder Scrolls. All the way back to Morrowind, it's so frustrating. And, and being a werewolf is so satisfying in comparison. But it being a being a vampire specifically in Morrowind is you might as well just re-roll. Yeah. Bethesda, I mean I got the I got the disease, but I ended up getting rid of it. I, I got cured of it real quick because I was like, I do not want to deal with this. But that's just on the right side of history on this one. And uh, happily, the founder, co-founders of Troika, Tim Kaine and Leonard Boyarsky, did find a home at Obsidian. Yeah, and, and there are lots of people in the community who immediately were like, Bloodlines 2? Bloodlines 2? Is it happening? And I'm kind of glad that that's been left alone. Yeah, I don't know. I would go for a Bloodlines 2. I think it would fit really well, actually, in this current environment. I mean, I would play it. Yeah, the the political intrigue of that game certainly has a place in the new in the new world. Like Camarilla, they're a fake news organization. I think Obsidian would be a great like they would be the perfect studio to pick up a game like that. They don't really do kind of AAA games anymore. And they focus a lot more on games like Pillars of Eternity and that kind of thing, but it would be nice to kind of see them get back in the saddle and make this but all right thanks ryan for coming on the show to talk about vampire the masquerade bloodlines that is number 22 on our list of the top 25 rpg countdown we'll be back as always next week for number 21 okay let's go on to the reader emails All right, thanks, Ryan, for coming on and talking about Vampire the Masquerade, number 22 on our list. And as always, now we got some email uh, reader lists. Drachmalia says, My experience with NetHack is so limited that it's basically non-existent. NetHack, of course, is the game that we talked about last week in our Top 25 RPG Countdown. I downloaded it four years ago and played one game where I died immediately and thought the game was outdated BS. This was a great discussion. I might give it another shot. Now I at least understand what the appeal is. Sounds like it earned its spot on the list to me. Nadia, I assume you've never played NetHack. I'm pretty sure I've given it a try. And uh, I it's just one of those games where you're like, oh, this looks like a lot of fun. Oh, I can have a pet. Oh, I'm dead. You know what I mean? Like, you're <laughs> when you're like, kind of weaned on Japanese RPGs, uh, you kind of try whatever you can when, you, when you're desperate for anything to play that's cheap or free or whatever. Um, I used to, That's why I used to actually play a lot of RPGs on my brother's Commodore 64, like Temple of Ashfix and stuff like that. And I, same thing, I usually died. Filthy casual. Filthy casual. The uh, Satellite of Love says Octopath Traveler will confuse and wash out a ton of Switch fans who ain't ready to tangle some Kawazu ass Kawazu weirdness. Mark my words. That's not that Kawazu y. <laughs> I mean, it's kind of saga y, but not really. Yeah, it's definitely saga y. And um, that's fairly conventional, so far at least. Yeah, uh, honestly, a lot of people are, first of all, I am hearing that these stories all join up at the end. So people who are kind of disappointed in how little they interact, the characters interact with each other, you know, okay, well, here's your here's your fix right here. Uh, but like I said in my review, I just don't feel like I was really starving for that interaction between the characters. If I want that, like, I can play literally any other JRPG out there, practically. Uh, Ventifer says, my favorite roguelike game is, road-like game is Tales of Majel. <laughs> it has graphics, but it seems very similar to NetHack. I've spent hundreds of hours in that game, and I've beaten it maybe four or five times on the base difficulty. 
I wouldn't have thought that Nadia would have picked the hunter as her starter character. I figured maybe the merchant would be her pick. Can't wait to pick up the game, though. Who do you think the merchant? Oh, that's uh, Tressa. She's the one whose mother has a very, like, Fargo accent. It's very cute. <laughs> now, you yes. watch out there. Here in making fun of my accent for some reason. Yeah, here in uh, it was uh, our, our guides dude was like, uh, oh, yeah, that's the way cat sounds. I'm like, uh, cat doesn't really sound like Silence! that. Silence! <laughs> fired. And then he oh, posted yeah. the, the missed field goal from the Vikings, and then he was fired. And Then he was fired, yeah. Again. I said, oh, well, RIP here, and it was nice to work with you. Peter Smith, 72. From my time with the demo, Octopath Traveler, I think the boss battles could stand to be shorter, even if someone that thinks that is crazy. Persona games have much snappier battles than this, so it's a poor com- comparison. Suikoden is one of my favorite series, and I think most JRPGs could learn from the way those games handle random battles. They're incredibly fast, characters can attack simultaneously, and auto battle will save you work if you set up your time- team strategically enough. I think the pacing is fine, to be perfectly honest. Uh, I do find some of the, the later boss is a little bit difficult but um a little bit long that is but the nice thing is that as you whittle them down you will see in their names their names are gradually turn yellow and then they'll turn red so you know you're getting there and that kind of really spurs you on uh, although i will say um i do love how suikoden suikoden 2 you've put in the commands and everyone attacks at once i've missed that so much uh, Gamer Law says, the game's lack of an overarching plot that ties the character stories together does not bother me. From the outset, Nintendo has advertised this game as eight adventurers, eight unique stories. When I played the first demo last September, I was struck by how similar Octopath Traveler and earlier Saga titles are. The combat title game systems in Saga Frontier and Octopath Traveler have little in common. The way in which parties are formed and the individual character story arcs are similar. Cat's analogy to Seventh Saga is certainly appropriate as well. Mm-hmm. Look forward to the final review. Uh, P Dub says, "Man, NetHack sounds like a game that would have tanked my high school GPA even more." <laughs> Most curious. The challenger says, "Your number twenty-three pick really makes me curious to see how this list will develop. Will the top ten you choose to be nothing more than advanced versions of the bottom fifteen? I wonder. No, they're not. In fact, uh, uh, you'll see. But it's not yeah, going to be like it's that. A, it's a big surprise." Mr. Humble One says, from what I'm hearing about Octopath Traveler, I'm starting to get worried. I play RPGs for their overall plots, so if there's not one, I will not likely not be interested. Take Xenoblade Chronicles 2, for example. Every blade had its own story, and you could explore those if you wanted to. The two uh, blade stories main quests were handled really well, and I love that about the game. If Octopath Traveler is just a collection of individual quests, then I will likely be skipping it. There may be characters that I'm not interested in at all. So for those, I won't bother with their stories. If there's no main quest and I only, like, say, half, four of the main characters, then I won't miss out on half of the game. I'll just have to wait and see what the reviewers say about this. Fingers crossed. Nadia, I mean, do you feel like there's a, quote, epic gap in that it's not epic enough? Like, it's it's a little too small in its scope? Uh, I really didn't get that feeling. Um, I just, uh, I, I like we were talking about earlier, the games characters even the characters i'm not like overly in love with uh their stories were enough more than enough to keep me engaged and of course when i really liked a character then it's just that much more interested in their stories but i just i just don't feel like i am missing out on that whole hey let's save the world quest uh at least not right now we sure have done that a lot haven't we the whole hey let's save the world thing how many times have we saved the world now (laughs) i can't count that high i really can't i my (laughs) just to kind of get a string of eights I think that smaller stories can have equally high stakes and can ultimately be a lot more emotional. I have not noticed at all the lack of an overarching plot. Frankly, I don't care. No. No. The less cliched, the better. (laughs) Oh, let's go on a big 
uh, pilgrimage and we're going to save the world. And oh, look, there's going to be a heroic sacrifice at the end. It's like, okay, yeah, whatever. Yeah, um, we kind of been there. And Octopath Traveler also has a, a more mature sort of voice to it for uh, because of that, I think. Uh, is really more about individual problems uh, versus like, again, like, hey, let's save the world. Let's get up in everyone else's business. I know that this is a totally different game and it's probably a terrible comparison, but a game like Skyrim is actually hurt by the overarching story that tries to pull everything together. If anything, Skyrim is a series of discrete kind of moments where you're going and you're talking to different characters and Mm -hmm. going on different quests and like series of small arcs that are a lot of fun. And it's where the, ga- the the game starts to break down when you're trying to do the overarching plot. And it's pretty annoying. If anything, if they didn't have the overarching plot, you could have situations where you could just go and kill the leader of the rebels if yeah. you could get close enough to them and actually overpower them. And I think that would be pretty cool. But instead, you have situations where they're actually invincible. So I don't know, like <laughs> trying to bolt an overarching save the world plot onto this might have actually weakened it. And that's just my opinion. Yeah, we have, I'll have to see how it's delivered or even if it happens at this point. I don't know. Calvin Redburn 14. I'm so happy to hear NetHack arrive on my contemporary list as a greatest game. I'm one of those masochists who has been playing the game 20 years and never beat it. I had the great fortune to have this game during a time where I did not actually have regular access to the internet. Being forced to play this game without any guide, having to write down everything by hand and study the game and learn it by organic exploration is one of the most unique and incredible experiences I think a person can have in video games. But it's one that I think can only come with either a lot of self-control to avoid just looking up the answers and frustration (laughs) or, you know, a father who stubbornly won't pay for unlimited internet on a 1998 (laughs) dial-up modem. Good old 98. The next RPG report is going to be NetHack, and I'm going to make you play, Nadia. It's going to be great. I'm going to die so fast. Nadia's death report. There you go. There's there's my write-up of NetHack. Axe of Blood is a U.S. Gamer podcast. You can find us on iTunes, Stitcher, wherever podcasts are sold. Please rate, subscribe, tell us how much you love us. We love to see positive comments and reviews on the podcast, and it helps it make it more visible on the iTunes and the Googles and all of those other places. Of course, go and check out the main site. We have a companion piece that we write up each week about each entry on the Uh, the list we also have an ongoing series about the history of rpgs part two should be up the day that this podcast goes live we have a lot of stuff going up uh this coming week it's Mm. it's gonna be keep an eye on the site we got like multiple cool features coming up that i'm very excited about over the course of the next couple weeks so please look forward to that and nadia you just ranked all of the octopath traveler characters didn't you i did and uh, it was fun. I mean, like I said, they're all they're all the best, but some some can only be like you know the best best. You know what I mean? Yeah. And number one is of course Ophelia. No, number one is not Ophelia. I'm not. I don't have any <laughs> horse in this fight. I don't care. Actually, I don't think Ophelia is the best character. Having said that, I do think it's funny to be actively pulling for one character. <laughs> <laughs> I just want to pull for someone, so I'm pulling for Ophelia. Yeah. All right. Nadia, we'll be back next week for number 21 on our top 25 RPG list. And we'll be talking about other things as well. Until then, for Nadia, myself, and Ryan, and Derek. Oh, my God. We had so many guests in this episode. Thanks for listening. And until next time, happy adventuring. Happy adventuring.